You are holy, holy, holy. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. We gather here this morning, Lord, I pray, to recognize you are God. Father, we, we thank you for drawing us to Christ. Jesus, we praise you for going to the cross and saving us with your blood and Holy Spirit for bringing the conviction we might see your holiness, God, and repent and believe and be saved. Father, you call us to be a holy people set apart for the purpose of bringing you honor and glory every moment of every day that you give us life. We know that you must do this great work and you call us to it as well. I pray that you would be glorified this morning as we proclaim the great gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you would redeem those who are here who do not know you, that you would strengthen and encourage those who do, and that you would set our feet upon that narrow path of the gospel of grace, that we might live this day and every day as a holy people, because you are holy. We praise you for this opportunity, Father. It is such a blessing. I pray we revel in it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. That's like the perfect song to sing before every sermon, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We missed you last week. My family missed you. I missed you. We were gone for a week, and it seemed like a long time. We had a chance to visit a sister church in Minden, Nevada, Grace Community Church. They say hello and send their blessings as well. It's so encouraging to go to a church where the gospel is preached, and it seems like you're in the same community. Um, we had actually one of their members and the children, Destiny. She was here about a month ago. We saw her, and she asked how everybody was doing. It's just a glorious thing to see God doing work in other places. And so I praise him for that. If you have a Bible, open up to the Gospel of John chapter 2. We started a few weeks ago this incredible endeavor to try to understand the revelation and teaching of Jesus Christ through this particular Gospel message. And if, if you've noticed early in the movements here, we're going to make it through the end of chapter 2, but chapter 1 and chapter 2, our Lord is laying a foundation for his entire ministry. He's setting the stage for the great mission of the redemption of the fallen man that he will complete in his work. We saw John the Baptist introduce him publicly as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We saw Jesus Christ calling men to become fishers of men for disciples to make disciples. We saw that great episode where Jesus takes Simon and he says, you are no longer Simon, you are now Peter. And he changes his name because he's going to change his heart and he's going to make him a new person. You saw last week, by God's grace, Pastor Kurt preaching on the power of this Messiah, the ability to change water into wine, testifying to him being the one who would save us by his power, not ours. And then today we will see that this kingdom of our Lord this kingdom that he brought to earth to save fallen man is a most holy kingdom. And all who claim to be Christ, who claim to be citizens of Christ, are called and expected to live holy lives as well. 
being holy in a fallen world, battling daily our fleshly desires, it is a difficult work. You know this as well as I do. I believe it's why G.K. Chesterton said Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. It's hard. It's a hard walk. But being holy in this fallen world is the calling of the church. It is the calling of every true believer saved by God's grace. Jesus said you are to be holy as my Father is holy. And as we just had a chance to sing, holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. You've been set free from the power of sin. And our Lord has imputed to you, he has given to you his righteousness. And therefore, we are to live in accordance with that righteousness. Paul said in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of external religion. He said it is of righteousness in the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, by God's grace, and with your, with your ears being attentive, I would like to look at this most famous event recorded here in the Gospel of John. This cleansing of the temple that our Lord exercised in the first week of his ministry. If you know your Bible, then you know the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also record a cleansing, but it's at the very end of his ministry, the last week. And lots of Bible scholars try to harmonize the two and say they're one and the same. They're two separate events. He cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and he cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry and it makes perfect sense. This, this Savior came as a representative of this holy God to call a holy people to worship his Father. And so in light of, in light of the fall, in light of sin, in light of the culture in which we live, Jesus is saying, if you're going to worship my Father, if you're going to worship the Father and the kingdom that I have brought to earth, it will not cohabitate with sin, period. It's a non-negotiable, my beloved. Jesus Christ came to destroy sin and his power to deny his Father all the glory and honor he rightly deserves. So I want to look at this teaching and this revelation of God's holiness through the cleansing of the temple, and I want us to see how Jesus Christ is the one who will make us clean his church. And I want to do that by looking at three things. One, Jesus cleaning the temple or cleansing the temple. Jesus replacing the temple. And then a milky faith. The cleansing of the temple, the replacing of the temple, and a milky faith. All right, are you wide awake this morning? All right, I got this new headset, so it should help, right? should help your hearing. Jesus cleansing the temple. The Bible says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's the desire or action of transgressing the law of God. It can be accomplished in the inner recesses of your heart or it can be exercised with your hands and your feet and your conduct of life by omission or commission. Simply put, it is any word, it is any thought, it is any action or inaction that is contrary to the will of God. That's sin. And Jesus makes it clear by his actions here in John chapter 2 that rebellion and sin will not be allowed to exist in his father's kingdom. David made this clear centuries earlier, almost a thousand years earlier. John, uh, David said in Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, listen to this, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God said that. 
You hate all evildoers. So much for the modern day heresy, God hates sin but loves the sinner. Look at verse 2, John chapter. Let me look at verse 13 in John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Passover meal was celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan. That was the full moon, late March, early April. And it was the first day that entered into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted from the 15th to the 22nd. And it was one of the three annual feasts that the Jews celebrated, and they were required to come. So Jesus enters the temple on the day of Passover, the day where the Jews remembered when the angel of death passed over their forefathers for all those who killed a sacrificial unblemished lamb and put that blood on the doorpost and the door frames. When the angel of death came to Egypt, all the firstborn died that did not have the covering of the blood. And so Jesus chooses this day to enter the temple courts. It's during this high holy day where the entire nation is gathering. All of God's people are descending upon Jerusalem to remember the grace that God delivered to their forefathers from death. It was a most solemn day. And so our Lord enters the temple expecting to see holiness and worship, prayer and adoration. But instead, what does he find? He finds business and financial gain. It's bristling with activity, but not the activity of God. It was the activity of man. This was the temple. This was the high, holy place. This is the place that God had designated in the Old Testament where he, the holy, holy, holy God, would commune with sinful man. This place it was a place where men and women from every nation could come and worship Yahweh, the one true living God. But we're told in verse 14 that in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. He found business taking place, the buying and the selling and exchange rates in the outer court of the temple. Now, the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. And it was a captive audience. They had come from afar and so they needed to have an unblemished sacrifice on the day of Passover. And so many, because they didn't want to travel with the animal, would actually buy the animal there. But it used to be sold, the animals used to be bought and sold in the Kidron Valley. And now Christ comes and they're being sold in the temple court of the Holy God. Not only that, there was a required tax of all Jewish males 20 years and older. And so they, they did their business there as well. It was convenient. And the, the tax that was taken, it was a Tyrian coin and it was, had a higher silver value. So wherever they came from, they had to exchange their money for these particular types of coins. And none of what they were doing was bad. The buying and the selling of the animals was not wrong. And the exchange of the money was not wrong. It's where they were doing it and why they were doing it. In the temple of God for convenience. D.A. Carson writes, instead of solemn worship and the murmur of prayer, Christ found the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. 
instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, he found their noisy commerce. Jesus said it well of the second cleansing in Matthew 21. Instead of a house of prayer, they had made it a den of robbers. And Jesus is angry. He's rightfully angry. This is his father's house. This is a holy place of worship. The outer court of the temple was was created by God that Gentiles, non-Jews could come. And even though they weren't part of the covenant with Abraham, they could come and they could worship the creator of the universe. And yet this very place designated by God for them on this high holy day of Passover was turned into a market. It must have been an incredible sight. They come to Jerusalem to worship God and they find this angry young man creating a ruckus in the temple. Animals running all over the place, merchants scattering out, the money changers trying to pick up their money off the ground because he turned the tables over. John describes the scene by quoting Psalm 69.9, zeal for his father's house consumed him, and yet I want you to know he did not sin in this. Was he angry? Very. Did he sin? Not at all. This was a most righteous anger. You see, Jesus Christ said, no one knows the father but the son. Jesus knows the father. He knows the holiness and the majesty and the glory and the power of this most holy God. And he comes to his father's house. He comes into the temple. And what does he find? Cows and sheep and bankers. Not prayer, not adoration, not conviction, not repentance. And yet Christ knows better than anyone that his father deserves undivided, holy worship, pure worship. Our Lord's action is a comprehensive rejection of all worship that is not pure. And it is simultaneously an invitation for you and me and all sinners saved by grace to come into the presence of God and worship him in spirit and in truth, in accordance with his word from the heart. And I pray that's why you're here this morning. I pray you're not here because it's Sunday morning. I pray that you've come to this place to worship this holy, holy, holy God. Our Lord has the same zeal for his Father's house today. That same passion in our Lord's belly to guard the honor and dignity of his Father's name in all true houses of worship, in all true churches, and not all churches are true churches. If there is no gospel in a place that calls itself a church, it is not a church. There is no life where there is no gospel. But many true churches today, many true churches in the South Bay, I believe have allowed the merchants and the money changers into God's house. So much noise and so many distractions. The culture has come in to God's place. Pastors seemingly more interested in branding and marketing than faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Worship services that resemble rock concerts. We've been visiting churches lately. And the last one that I left, my ears were ringing because the music was so loud. My eyes were hurting when I came out because the sanctuary was so dark. My senses were heightened with the videos and the lights and the lasers and the smoke that comes on cue. And every time I go, I think Jesus would do something here. 
he would come in and he'd clean this place. He would tear down many of those speakers and he would take out the smoke machines. And it just breaks my heart because so many are captivated by the things that are not of God. Rather than these worship services where we have an opportunity to come and be still and know that Yahweh is God. To really pray to God and to sing to God and to hear his word preached. Not some foolish message by a man, but his word. Jesus Christ came to clean, to make his father's house pure. He does it in the church. He does it with us individually. Cleansing all the pollution that's made its way into our lives. We are temples of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you if you know Jesus Christ. And yet how much are our minds defiled by the noise and the chaos and the sounds of the culture today? How much of our daily worship of the living God is infected by the things that ought not be there? The inner sanctum of our heart so oftentimes moved by ungodly desires rather than things for the kingdom. Jesus came then to clean his father's house. He comes now to clean his father's house. And that is his doing by his power. He says in verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons. I don't know why he, he, he pointed out the pigeon keepers. I don't know why, but he said to the pigeon holders, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so we get our, our first imperative from point one. If you know Christ, you've already been made holy. If you know Christ, you've already been sanctified. You're already righteous. And so why debase and why defile the righteousness that God has already brought to you? He says, take these things away. All the noise, all the chaos of the world that's made its way into our church, into your home, and into your life. Jesus says, take it away. Enough already of the cattle and the sheep and the pigeons. Enough already of the mainstream media that just continues to infect us. Enough already of the hours in front of the television. Enough already of the Facebook. Enough already. How different we would be as a people if our hearts and minds spent more time dwelling upon the word of God and praying to God and ministering the gospel of grace than in all the things that we spend time doing. You say, well, well, Facebook in itself is not evil. That's debatable. But you might argue that. You might argue that. And I say, very well. But do you read your Bible as much time as you spend on Facebook? Do you pray as much time as you spend watching movies? Jesus says, take these things away. Take them out of my church. Take them out of your homes. Take them out of your heart. Lest we only hear the words that God spoke to the prophet Isaiah when he said in Isaiah 1, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? God says to so many churches and so many homes and so many believers today, bring no more vain offerings God says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. We can't bring the two together and expect God to be honored in worship. We can't have a solemn assembly and all the noise and chaos and the bleeding of sheep in our ears at the same time. God said, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Listen. 
I know that is the case for many of us, many of our homes and many of our churches, because we're not taking these things away. He says, take them away. Enough already. So first I pray that we see that Jesus came to cleanse his father's house. This is ministry. Secondly, I want us to see he not only came to clean it, he came to replace it. He came to build an entirely separate house. Point number two, Jesus replaces the temple. Obviously, the merchants and the money changers and the religious elite, they were displeased with our Lord's actions. He came in. He ruined their money-making machine. He was telling them they're not doing church right. They're not worshiping God right. Who knows how long they had been practicing these things in the outer court. And so they want to know what authority Jesus had to tell them they were doing church wrong. They wanted to know what authority he had to come in and turn upside down literally all that they thought was right and true in worship of the living God. Look at verse 18. John chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? This, my beloved, was the beginning of a long and strained relationship between Jesus Christ and the religious ruling elite in Jerusalem. Jesus came to redeem fallen man. He came to bring righteousness back to his people. He came to, to save us that we might actually love God and worship God with a pure heart. Contrary to the religious leaders who were there seeking self-adoration and self-glorification in a religious structure God hated. So he was at odds with them from the very beginning and we see that here. But I want you to notice something. Do you notice that they don't dispute the righteousness of his actions? It's amazing to me. They don't, they don't critique him. They don't try to defend themselves. They don't even try to arrest him. They want to know, who gives you the right to do this? What authority do you have to do this? That is their great concern. Says who? And I imagine because they thought, they knew, you know, if the Messiah really does come, he's probably going to do something like this. He'll probably come and he'll do some cleaning in his father's house. But rather than trusting Jesus that he is the Messiah, and rather than going to the Old Testament, where they could have read passage after passage that substantiated Jesus' actions, rather than doing this, they said, give us a sign. Prove that you're the Messiah. Do a trick. I mean, really, they were asking the creator of the universe to do a trick. Supernaturally substantiate that you are really the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And this asking of signs and miracles on cue was something the Jews did throughout his entire ministry. They treated, they treated the creator like a second-rate circus act. Show us something. Show us something. A little later in his ministry, we're told in John chapter 12, and we'll get there, that though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. There was no sign that our Lord could perform not even his death and resurrection, which we will see, that would convince them that he was indeed the Messiah. He gave them an answer anyway. He's so gracious. He's so gracious. He not only gives them an answer, he gives them the answer. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it's intentionally cryptic. Even the disciples didn't get it. 
He just finished cleansing the temple. They're standing in the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and they're all thinking, this, the temple of Herod, the temple they're standing in. But of course, we know he was speaking of himself. He was speaking of his own body. In fact, the word he uses for temple here, it's naos, and it means, it means specifically sanctuary or sanctum. It means a place where the holy God of all creation communes with man, the place where God comes and meets with mankind. Now, under the old covenant, that was the temple they were standing in. It was the place that God had designated where he would come and meet with his people, Israel. But under the new covenant that God was ushering in through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the person, becomes the temple. Jesus becomes the living temple of God. You know, after rebuking the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 because they, they misunderstood the Sabbath day and they were, they were trying to apply it to our Lord and his disciples for eating some grain, he not only says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, but then he says something amazing. In Matthew 12, 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, the temple for the Jews, that was the greatest thing on earth. And he says, something greater. More aptly put, someone greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater because the Bible says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him richly. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than any temple made by any human hands because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he's prophesying to the destruction of his own body. He's prophesying to his body being buried in the tomb for three days and he's prophesying to his resurrection from the dead. The whole gospel right here. They wanted a sign. Maybe a little more water into wine. Maybe giving a blind man some sight. They wanted a sign. Jesus is going to give them a sign. And it was a sign that was going to decimate their entire understanding of religious practice. It was a sign that was going to make the temple that they knew obsolete and every sacrifice obsolete. They should have been careful what they asked for. Every single time in scriptures that someone asked Jesus for a sign to do a trick, to prove he's the Messiah, he points him to the cross. One sign he will show. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now this is after Christ had already performed many miracles that some of these men saw, but it wasn't enough. The scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Many in the church need to hear that today. He says, But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What was the sign of the prophet Jonah? Verse 40, Matthew 12, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He will die. He'll be buried, and he will rise again. That is the sign. There's no need for any more signs. No need for any more signs, saints. The sign has been given. Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. Amen? All right, all right. Remember that. Two truths come from this. Many, but two amazing ones. His death rendered the Jewish temple... And all the sacrifices obsolete because he fulfilled them perfectly. 
This sign, this single sign they so desperately wanted ended the entire system of sacrificial worship. Our Lord's death and resurrection accomplished the work that the hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of animals sacrificed under the old covenant were unable to do. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those, those sacrifices cannot purify. And then the author continues in verse 12 and says, but Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. That single sacrifice has the power to clean, has the power to cleanse these filth-ridden temples. And then he says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he, Jesus Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, he has, past tense, if you are in Christ, already made you perfect. This is the glorious tension in the gospel. You're already holy, saints. You're already perfect. You already have the blood of Christ. You've already been made righteous. Positionally speaking, you are seated with God at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. That's worth at least one amen. And then he says, and practically, now we work out our salvation. We keep growing because we fight every day the flesh. We fight the culture. We fight these temptations. He said, you are holy, and now work out your holiness. I've shared this before. It's a line I love. Rich Mullen said, before he died, he said, you know, we're just, we just spend our whole life trying to, work, trying to catch up with the work the Holy Spirit's already done. The Holy Spirit's already done it. His death destroyed the necessity of temple sacrifice. When he paid for our sins upon the cross, he brought salvation and holiness to all who repent and believe. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it. Stop working for your salvation. Stop sacrificing things to be, to be put in good favor with God. If you are in Christ, you are in the greatest favor with God that any man or woman can have. It is finished. There's a second thing that this teaching reveals. Not only does this death satisfy the payment of our sins, bringing an end to the necessity of the old covenant sacrificial system, but his resurrection establishes a new living temple in him. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. This omnipresent Savior says, I am the temple. Jesus Christ is the ultimate living temple of God. The place where God is to be worshipped is in Christ. And therefore, for all those who are in Christ, all of you who have put your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, all of you who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you know you're a mini temple. We're all little mini temples. And we get together like this, we're a little bit bigger of a mini temple, right? And then one day when we all stand before God, the entire church will gather and the mini temple will be together as one. This is the dwelling place in Christ. We have that relationship with the Father, not because we spill the blood of goats or, or bulls or lambs, but because the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was spilled. And therefore, we can commune with God, and we can love God and be loved by God and have fellowship. I mean, and really know God and not do religion, but know the gospel and enjoy it. Jesus Christ is the temple. And that means, dear friends, because he is the true temple and his dwelling place is amongst the faithful, his church, 
The only place that you can worship God is in Christ. The only real temple, and there are millions of false temples, the only real temple is Jesus Christ. And that means if you're outside of Christ, you're outside of the temple. If you're outside of the church, you're outside of the temple. And if you're outside the temple, you cannot worship God. You cannot be in the temple of the living God and be a Hindu. You cannot be in the temple of Jesus Christ and be a Jehovah's Witness or an unsaved Christian. You cannot be a Muslim. You cannot be a Buddhist. You cannot be a Mormon because they're not in Christ and Christ is the temple. That means, my beloved, that if you are outside the temple, even if you're in a place like this, you're outside the fellowship with God. You stand condemned already. Jesus said in John 3.18, whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's why we preach a crucified, risen Savior every Sunday. If you're not in Christ, you're not in the temple. If you're not in the temple, you can't worship God. If you cannot worship God, you stand condemned already. And so we preach Christ, and we preach Christ crucified, and we will, by God's grace, long after I'm gone, if this church is still here. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Why? Because that's the only hope of salvation. The only hope of salvation is being in Jesus Christ because Christ is the temple. You want to know the Father? You got to be in Christ. You want to worship God? You got to be in Christ. We preach as a church, crucified, risen Savior, because this is the sign It was given, and it stands. And we preach it to a dying world. We don't preach some confused, partial truth that tries to fashion God into some pathetic idol in our minds. But salvation, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, alone. Trusting in a crucified, risen Savior that his temple was destroyed And he rose on that third day that we might have life both now and forever. Look at their response. Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. They thought, of course, that he was talking about Herod's temple. Herod the Great actually started a renovation of the temple back in 20 B.C., it's amazing the timelines here because we can get really specific on when Jesus was talking. 1920 BC, he started a renovation and expansion of the temple, Herod the Great did. This was 46 years before this dialogue. So this places us right around 26, 27 AD. This dialogue is taking place, which matches, of course, the rest of scripture and the historical record. And as grand a sign this would have been, I mean, it would have been an amazing thing for that temple of Herod the Great to be destroyed and then Christ to rebuild it in three days. It would have been an amazing sign, but nothing close to what Christ was gonna do. Nothing. Jesus is saying, you're gonna gonna destroy me. In fact, look at verse 19 again. It's an implied you. Jesus doesn't say, I'm gonna destroy the temple. He's implying, you're gonna destroy the temple. In other words, you're gonna kill me. You're gonna bury me. 
And I, the sign that I'm going to give you is that I'm going to rise from the dead. I will be resurrected to life after you destroy me and after you bury me. By this most remarkable sign of death and resurrection, Jesus Christ establishes his authority to clean the house of God. He establishes his authority to set forth his mission of redeeming fallen man, worshiping God and loving God and teaching us how to as well. By dying and rising from the dead, Jesus Christ nullifies every skeptic. And he says, I am certainly qualified to cleanse my father's house, to die for the sins of men, and to show you how to love and worship my heavenly father. Christ is qualified. And that means, my beloved, he has every right to throw out every sinful habit out of his father's house, to cleanse every darkened heart that is driven by money or the market or popularity, because he's God. He's God. And if you're a true believer, then he has every right to clean you too. As much as we fight that, and we fight it, oh, do we fight it? He's God. He will clean you. He will make you holy. He will make you holy. I praise him for that. Look at verse 22. When, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John I love the humility. John freely admits, we didn't get it either. None of us got it. All the disciples standing there, all the Pharisees and all this, and no one got what he was talking about until after the fact. But after the fact, after he died and after he rose and after Pentecost, when he sent the Holy Spirit, he enabled not only the disciples and the apostles to get it, but them, them to write it down that we might read and through the Holy Spirit understand it too, that all these cryptic teachings that the unsaved does not ever get, we get don't get angry at the unsaved. Paul said the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually discerned. Don't get angry. Pray for them. Talk to them. Teach them. There was a time when you didn't get it either. You'd have read this and you said, I thought he was talking about the physical temple because he didn't get it. The Holy Spirit's not there. But by God's grace, we have the Holy Spirit and we can understand these things, even those most cryptic. Why? We can worship God rightly that we can be in Christ and have God dwell in us and not make these catastrophic mistakes of bringing filth and chaos and noise into our Father's house. So we've seen one, I pray, the necessity of cleaning. We all need a good cleaning. Two, that Christ is the new temple. We don't want to go back. Don't enslave yourself to some religious system. Christ is the new temple. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is this milky faith. How many of you know where that comes from? Raise your hand if you know the milky faith. It's an obscure statement made by Martin Luther. I'll, I'll show you in a minute. Look at this last section. Verses 23 through 25, they actually, it's a bridge. It's a bridge between this dialogue that Jesus is having in the temple courts and to the dialogue he will have next week with Nicodemus and being born again. You gotta be here next week. I mean, John chapter three is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. It's so powerful. And he's tying the two together, this idea of cleansing and the need to be born again. And here are his transition verses. Look at verse 23 and following. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. 
So our, our Lord on the Passover, which is on the 14th, he celebrated. And then on the, on the 15th to the 22nd, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So Jesus is there. He's going to celebrate with his people. And as he's there, he's doing other miracles, other miracles. And people are seeing the miracles take place. And it says here that many actually believed in him because of the signs. But I want you to notice that our Lord knows people well. He knows how fickle we are. He knows that their faith was not a saving faith. He knows that they would love him one minute and then cry for him to be crucified the next. And therefore, he was not dependent upon their belief or their faith to exercise the mission that God had given him. He would do the work that his father sent him independent of anyone believing or not believing. He was doing the will of his father. And at this point in the ministry, our Lord knew that their faith was a disingenuous and transitory faith. It was a faith that was based upon sight. They saw miracles and they said they believed. It was not a faith born of the Holy Spirit. It was not a regeneration of the heart. It was not a man being born again. It was a transitory faith. Martin Luther called this type of faith, he called it a milky faith. A milky faith because he writes, faiths like, faith like these are enthousiastic, they enthusiastically agree, give into, and believe anyone or anything one minute and then will just as quickly withdraw when they hear something unpleasant or unexpected the next. Many with milky faith have come in and out of this church. They'll come in, they'll hear, they'll taste, and then as we keep moving through Scripture and Scripture and Scripture, they run into something like, I don't like that. And they leave. I fear the church today is filled with many people exercising a milky faith, wanting to only have their ears tickled for pastors and preachers to tell them what they want to hear. False teachings, soft messages, looking for signs and wonders rather than being satisfied in the sign of the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many milky faiths today turning away from difficult teachings, from sound doctrine, from the call to holiness, to partial truths, and careless living in the name of Christian freedom. So much sin taking place in the name of Christian freedom. I like John MacArthur said this beautifully. He says, Christian freedom is subordinate to purity in Christ the word of God, and being made holy. John says that they believed him, but he did not believe them. It's a word play. They believed in him, but he did not believe in them, for he knew that their faith was insincere. Now, some would hear this today, I imagine, and be a bit confused because of all the false salvific messages that go out from pulpits around the world today. We hear pastors say, believe and you will be saved. Say a prayer and you will be saved. Repeat these words after me and you will be saved. You know, the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Two weeks ago, this one I found. This tract. You ready? Hold on. God, I'm pretty rotten. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I invite Jesus into my heart. Thanks for that. Amen. Thanks for that. 
The bottom of the card reads, congratulations. If you have read this sinner's prayer, you are saved. That's pure hate. If you have read this prayer, you are saved. How quickly we forget James 2.19. James said the demons believe and they shudder. Why? Because not a single demon will be redeemed. Every single demon will spend all eternity in hell. They believe. They obviously didn't get this card. Simple beliefism on reading an unbiblical prayer or repeating after a charlatan pastor and then saying you are saved is contrary to the gospel of grace. The Bible says clearly that God saves. The difference between a saving faith and a said faith, a dead faith and a living faith is the Holy Spirit making a man anew. You can say whatever you want. You can pray whatever you want. You can be baptized 20 times. You can go to church your whole life. And unless God saves you, you are outside the temple. Don't be fooled by these, these, these sayings. They're wicked. Our Lord was looking for genuine conversions, not these temporary responses to the supernatural and the spectacular. They, I mean, they loved what he was doing. Fantastic stuff. He wasn't interested in that. He wanted a change of heart. He wanted a faith. It was not conjured up by passion or tricks or emotion, but was a gift from God to save a man. Then and now, Jesus wants people to trust in him, in who he is, not in some supernatural trick or some test we tell him to pass. He's the creator. I mean, I shudder when I think of these men telling the creator to pass a test that we make up devastating thought. It again goes to show our Lord's grace and humility at this time that he didn't smite them on the spot and say, how dare you tell me, your creator, to take and pass a test? Reminiscent of Job chapter 38, I will tell you, you're going to pass a test for me. He didn't do that. Look at verse 24. He knew all people, verse 25, and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew all people then. He knows all people now. He knows us universally, our universal condition. He knows our personal dispositions. And although perfectly sinless himself, he didn't need anyone to tell him how wretched and depraved the human heart is. This is the creator. For all of human history, he has watched man destroy himself. He has watched man shed man's blood. He has watched man commit adultery and idolatry, bowing down to false gods other than his father. He's watched man lie. He's watched man covet. He's watched man steal. He's watched us take the Father's name in vain. He's watched us violate the Lord's Day, the Holy Sabbath. He's watched parents treating their children in a manner not pleasing to the Lord. He's watched children disobey their parents. He's watched governments decimate people. And he's watched people be rebellious against governments. Jesus Christ needs no one to tell him about the heart of man. He knows the historical record. And the historical record is a living testimony to the depth and darkness of the human condition in our fallen state. And that is each and every one of us. Do not write yourself outside of history. Do not stand above it. We are the problem. And that means those who still pander 
the lie that man is inherently good or that man can somehow save himself by doing good works or that man can somehow say a particular prayer or go to church or get baptized. These are anti-Christ and anti-Christ messages. They're not the gospel. According to the rabbinic tradition at that time, rabbis said there were seven things that no man can know. One is listed here. That is the ability for someone to know their neighbor's heart. Rabbi said, no one can know that. John says it here for this reason. By making the statement that Jesus knew all people, John's saying this Jesus is God. 1 Kings 8, 39 says clearly, God alone knows the hearts of all men. In other words, Jesus knows all people because he is God. I pray, my beloved, that we can see this morning that our Lord's cleansing of the temple expresses his absolute hatred for sin, hatred for false worship, and the need that we have for him to make us clean, the need that we have to be able to gather on a Sunday morning and actually come into this place and worship him without being killed by him. He's a holy God. The need for Christ to come into our homes and make our homes pure and our marriages pure and our child-rearing pure. We need God by the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and make them right and to purify our minds because our thoughts are defiled. You can't do this on your own. God makes you holy. Positionally, you're holy in Christ and then God makes you holy day by day, week by week. That is the process of sanctification. It is what we're called to. Now, grievously, our flesh is such that being zealous for Christ quickly leads to condemnation and judgment of others. I am guilty of this, saints. The harder you pursue Christ and the more you love Christ, the more your flesh will put you above other people and say, look at them, and you look down. So how are we to be zealous without sinning? How are you to be passionate for holiness without simultaneously condemning your neighbor? Jesus came, and he cleansed his father's house, but he did not sin. You say, well, yeah, but he's God. That's not fair. In order for us to do the same, you are not God, but you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. In order for you to pursue holiness, to be zealot for God's name, be zealot for God's name, be zealot for his house, be passionate for your home and your wife and your children, be a zealot that way. Do that without condemning by every day spending time in the word of God and coming before God in prayer and having him remind you that you are a sinner saved by grace, that you're still a sinner. You're a sinner saved by grace. And if there's anything right or true or pure or good in you, if there's anything that you're doing that is even remotely holy, it's because of the Holy Spirit doing that through you. You can't pat yourself on the back, Christian. Praise God instead for the great work that he's doing in you. Self-examination and daily humility before the cross of Christ will enable you to be passionate for God's name and not condemning. Hard to do. Be careful. I also pray that we see that through our Lord's death and resurrection, 
The destruction of the temple, the destruction of the Old Testament sacrifices is complete, and Jesus Christ is our new temple, and we stand in him. We stand in him. He makes dead sinners alive. His, his body was destroyed, that your body, even though it will die, will one day live. We won't descend into Hades. We won't await the final judgment of God on that great day. Not if you know Christ. If you're in the temple, you're in the temple forever. Glorious thing, perseverance of the saints. You can't leave, even if you try. And many of you try too hard to leave. And what does he do? He keeps bringing you back. You're not going to get out. Stop fighting. Stay. Paul said in Romans 4.25, he, Jesus Christ, was delivered up for our trespasses. His body was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And he was raised for our justification. The temple was rebuilt. Jesus lives that we might live. My last thing I'll close. I pray that we can see that a superficial faith has no power to save. There's no power to save in a faith that's not a saving faith that comes from God. Genuine faith Biblical faith is a gift that God gives you. He is the author and the perfecter of it. If you believe, I mean, if you really believe, and you can say with all assuredness that you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you know that by the transformation of your heart and mind that the Holy Spirit dwells in you because you're different. I mean, you're substantially different today than you were a year ago or five years ago. If you know that and you believe and you have faith, know that faith was given to you as a gift. It wasn't because you said some prayer and it wasn't because you read some silly card and it wasn't because you repeated after some charlatan pastor. It's because God saved you. He gave you faith. Saving faith. This cleansing of the temple that Jesus does here and does again at the end of his ministry, it's a foreshadowing of the ultimate cleansing that will come when Jesus Christ comes again in the glory of his Father and he cleanses all of creation. It points to that for all of us on that great and awful day of the Lord when Christ comes to man and comes to his creation and he punishes and destroys and judges all sin and all sin is not saved by grace. It makes perfect and holy all of us who those who have been saved by grace. Point, points to this day. Malachi 3, 2, and 3 said this. Who can endure the day, the day, and it's coming, it's coming. Who can stand when he, he hears, hears, for he will be like a finer fire, fire, or a longer soap, he will sit as refiner, finer, purifier, fire. And then the Lord will have men, men will bring offering, offering his righteousness. Who will make it through the fire and fire him? Who will be able to stand this process of purification when Christ appears? Who will be able to bring, what man or woman will be able to bring a pure offering before a thrice holy God with nothing contaminated, a real offering? Who? Only those who have already been made clean by the blood of the Lamb in this life. Only those, dear friends, who worship God in the real temple, in the person of Jesus Christ. This is glorious news. It means that today, as the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come into the temple, 
Today is the day to worship God in spirit and truth with all the purity the Holy Spirit gives you. Today is the day to rejoice and be glad for Jesus Christ. His, his temple was destroyed and he rose from the dead to make you clean. Your sins are forgiven. You're holy. You're holy. You're holy. You know that. Will you leave this place saying, I am holy in Christ with all my sin and all my rebellion and all my wicked thoughts. I'm holy in Christ, not because of me, but because of him. Do you know that? Do you meditate on that? Do you rejoice over it? Do you praise God over it daily? Do you ask him to make it more clear? I ask, I said, show me more of who I really am in your son. Because there are times, saints, when I feel so lost still and so wretched still. So need of cleansing still, but so thankful that he's faithful, and he said he would. Even me, even someone as wretched as me is going to be made clean. It's hard for me to imagine. Hard for me to imagine coming before Christ and him saying, my holy son. But it's true. I know it's true. It's true for you if you're in him. If you're in him. If you're not, repent today. Ask him. He's, he wants to save. Ask him. He's quick to save. Come into the temple and enjoy the sweet fellowship of God the Father through his Son. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this teaching cuts the very marrow of our bone we know, we know how far off the mark we still are. We know that our church and our homes and our hearts and minds are still filled with the chaos and noise of this world. We know that. I praise you for showing us that today. We might have a deep desire to be made clean by you, when you, when you refine us in the end, we will be pure and holy as your son is pure and holy. Lord, show us, Lord, that the old covenant is gone and the new covenant is here and that your son, Jesus Christ, is the temple. And if we are to worship you in spirit and truth, we have to be in him. Our life, our hope, our trust, our work, our marriage, our home have to be in him. Give us as a people that hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not hungry and we're not thirsty, Lord. Change that, I pray. Make us as a body of believers. Make your church as a body of believers hungry for Christ. Daily feeding upon the word. Coming before you in prayer. Seeking forgiveness for our sins. Asking you to make us holy. And then pursuing the means of grace to that end. I praise you for being a holy God. I praise you for sending Jesus Christ to redeem an unholy people. I praise you for gathering us here this morning and being patient with us, being patient with those who are growing in this faith. I pray, Lord, you bless my brothers and sisters. Grow them this week in the love and the knowledge and wisdom of your son, Jesus Christ, for to him, Belongs all the glory and all the honor forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen.